Our gracious Father, precious Savior, Holy Spirit, we thank you for being here with us, as you always are, as you promised to never leave us or forsake us, as you promised that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from your love. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. And I pray that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path this morning. God, I ask that your spirit would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. So two weeks ago, oh no. Oh good, that's not up there. (laughs) I spelled ago wrong. That kind of week. How do you spell the word ago wrong? Three letters. I put age. Two weeks age. Jesus healed the centurion's servant. Last week, Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead. This week, when John the Baptist hears about all of this from some of his disciples, he sends them back and asks if Jesus is the one they are waiting for. Jesus then proceeds to praise John and rebuke the current generation. Um, I wanted to get the whole sections, verse 17 through 35, in because it's that whole section that speaks uh, where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And as a result of it, instead of one beautifully cohesive sermon, you're going to get a couple kind of, yeah, you'll see as we go. But let's read our text for this morning. And then, why did I say verse 17? We're starting in verse 18. Oh, oh my. Jesus loves you, go home. No, I'm joking. Um, Verse 18, wow. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejoiced, or sorry, rejoiced, oops, rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. 
We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. So back to verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. What things? Well, over the last couple weeks, he had healed the centurion's servant, and he had raised a young man from the dead. Some of John's disciples were witness to that, and they're like, we should go tell John about this. And John called two of those disciples to himself and sent them back to Jesus. He said, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So when they got there, they said to Jesus, you know, John the Baptist sent us, are you the coming one? Where do we look for another? And that very hour, he cured you know, infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, gave sight to the blind, and he answered them, Go and tell John the things you've seen, the things you've heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So when John sends his two disciples to Jesus to ask if Jesus is indeed the Messiah, I see in John here a faith that is wavering. Now keep in mind, at this point, John is in prison. He knows he's probably not getting out. Um, Jesus, while his ministry was public at this point, and healing people, raising the dead, preaching to people, Rome was still in charge. Jesus hadn't gotten rid of the, you know, the oppressive rulership of, of the Roman government. He hadn't overthrown the, the crazy hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And so he sends these guys and go, you know, will you go ask him? And this is why I think his faith is wavering. Because Jesus and John were related. And we remember that back from when we were earlier in the book of Luke. Well, at least I hope. It was almost a year ago now. Um, but Mary went to see Elizabeth when she was pregnant. And John leapt in her womb, being filled with the Holy Spirit, when Mary was just pregnant with Jesus. Chances are, they grew up together. Now, you know, maybe they played trucks together. Maybe they dug holes together. Maybe, you know, Jesus would raise a dead bird and then tease his cousin that he couldn't do it. I don't know. We talked a little bit last week about how fun it would be to be Jesus. Um, you know, most of it. But they, he knew him. Not only did he know Jesus, when John preached a message of repentance to point people to Jesus, and Jesus came on the scene, back in John one twenty nine. Or, yeah, John one twenty nine. John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew who Jesus is. John knew why Jesus was there. And then he sends his disciples, Can you go find out if he's really this guy? That, to me, is a wavering faith. And I think his faith is wavering because of his circumstances. Now, I say it all the time, I know you guys are all better than me, but my faith wavers at my circumstances from time to time. And sometimes those time to times aren't as far apart as I'd like. But it happens. Right? Something bad happens. And then you have to, well, you know, 
my favorite question, it's one of my favorite questions I get as a pastor, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? I'm like, well, there's a, there's a fatal flaw in your question. You'd have to show me a good person. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't do church to feel good about yourself, right? But why does God, you know, why do all these horrible things keep happening to me? I, I, I'm not God. I can't usually answer the question about why something went wrong. I'll walk with you through it. I'll pray with you. I'll cry with you. Give you a hug if you need a hug. But I don't always know that answer. But what I do know is our circumstances can at times cause our faith to waver. So what happens? Jesus answers John's question in two ways. By the works that he performed and by the message that he preached or the word that he preached. So the works bear witness to who Jesus is and the word bears witness to Jesus is, to who Jesus is. And since it's early enough in the message, I'd like you, please, and thank you, to follow me over to John chapter 10. If I was like a half an hour in already, I might not do this because there's a couple passages we're going to look at that are kind of long. Um, but John chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 22. Now it was the Feast of Dedication. I know you're on your way there, but I'm going to get started because it's long. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you not, do not believe, because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. One of my favorite things that we find in Scripture, there's a, a lot of people that like to argue, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I and my Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. See, the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, did us a great favor throughout the Gospels. <clears throat> Whenever they try to kill him, it's because he claimed to be God. Every single time. Even when he is on trial the night before his crucifixion, the, the, the high priest declared, what further testimony do we need We've heard it from his very own mouth that he, being a man, has made himself equal with God. They knew what he was saying. So Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Now, in case anybody doesn't know, sarcasm is a spiritual gift. And, for those of you who know me really well, sarcasm is my love language. Because um, you got to just got a picture him. He knew he wasn't going to die. He knew it wasn't time. So you know, I've healed the blind. I've healed the deaf. I've cured leprosy. I've raised the dead. For which one of those are you going to kill me? The Jews answered, "For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy." Uh oh, because you, being a man, make yourself God. 
The Jews understood what he was saying. So how a person today can look at the Gospels and say, Jesus never claimed to be God, you're not reading the Gospels. Because if you read them, it's pretty clear. I'm not even saying you have to have some special interpretation, or you have to know the Greek, or anything like that. Just read it. That's a different sermon altogether. Jesus answered, it is, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and said into the world, you are blasphemy? Because I said I am the Son of God? Yeah, Jesus never said it. See, sarcasm. If you do not do, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Jesus is here declaring that the works he did, really the works that he still does today, because it would be foolish of us to think that he has stopped working. The works that he does are the witness of who he is. And that's what he told John. He told his, John's disciples, go back and tell him what you saw. The blind can see. The deaf can hear. The lame can walk. The dead are raised. Go tell him that. Because I couldn't do it if I'm not who I say I am. And he says, then tell him that the gospel is preached to the poor. And I really like that. I think we often take that to think, well, why was Jesus only preaching to those who had no money? Well, I'm sure it did include those who had no money. Money? Little Billy Idol. Money, money. Sorry. <clears throat> a few of you were too young for that reference. I'm looking around. There's a couple of people like, what is that? Go home. Google Billy Idol. Money, money. It's a terrible song. <laughs> Usually I give you homework to go read your Bible, not to go Google Billy Idol, but you know, whatever. Um, I got lost. Amy, where was I at? <laughs> preaching the gospel to the poor. Yes, all right. But often I think he's preaching the gospel to the poor in spirit. That's what he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. To know that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that's to whom the gospel needs to be preached. Now follow me back to John chapter 5, because... In preaching the gospel to the poor, he gave that to his disciples, or to John's disciples, as evidence of who he is. John chapter 5. I said that, right? Why did I put verse 22 there? All right. Really, we're going to start in verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do of myself 
I can of myself do nothing. As I hear and judge, my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. The works that Jesus do, do, does, did, does now, bear witness to who he is. And so does the word of God. So does the word of God. He made that very, very clear. We're going to go back to Luke. Because after Jesus said all of this, in verse 23, he said, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The word for offended here is scandalizo. And it means, right, it's where we get our word scandalized from. And it means to make stumble, to trip up, to entice to sin, or to entice to apostasy, which is a falling away from your faith. It means to entrap or to offend. So what Jesus is saying here is that the one who does not get tripped up in their faith is blessed. Now, there should be a number of us who are feeling a little uncomfortable because as we talked about earlier, I think at some point in time, maybe it was a year ago, maybe it was yesterday, maybe it's right now, we all face circumstances that will cause us to waver. And Jesus is saying, well, you're blessed if you don't do that. So what do we do when that happens to us? What happens if we want to be blessed, but we are wavering in our faith? I'm going to give you three quick steps so we can move forward. First one, it's always my favorite. Repent! First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, really, wavering in my faith is a sin? Yes. I wish it wasn't, because it's a sin I have committed many times. Because when we waver in our faith, it means we don't trust that he is who he says he is. And that's a sin, folks. I wish it wasn't. I said that, right? Do you have any idea how much easier my job would be if, if the Bible didn't say certain things were sins? Because when I have somebody coming into my office and they're struggling and, and they're, they're really, they don't know what's going on or they're, they're, they're having a hard time trusting in God and they look at me and they tell me that, the last thing I want to do is to look at them and tell them to repent. Because I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to make them feel bad. But when we don't trust God, it is a sin. So we confess that sin. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin. Then we acknowledge our weakness. 
Mark 9.24, I say it a lot, my favorite prayer in Scripture. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because it's okay to acknowledge your weakness. It's okay to look at God and say, I can't do this. I don't have the faith. I don't have the strength. I don't have the courage. I don't have the perseverance or whatever it is. It's okay to acknowledge that. Because then in God's grace, we get back up. Proverbs 24, 16 tells us that a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. And what I always like about explaining or talking about this verse is people go, oh, well, you know, you can, you can make seven mistakes as a Christian and as long as you get back up. But that's not what the number seven means here. The number seven throughout Scripture is always used as a number that represents completeness. So when it says a righteous man may fall seven times, it says that a righteous man may fall completely, utterly. Bottom of the barrel, at the end of your rope, put whatever label or cliche you want on it, you have fallen so far that you are unrecognizable as a follower of Christ. None of you have done that, right? How do we rise again? Well, God knows our weakness. He knows we're made of dust. Psalm 103, 14. He knows that while we have no reason to ever not trust him, there will be times when our weakness will show. And even though it's a sin, I don't think God is angry with us for our weakness. But he doesn't want us to live in our weakness. He wants us to live in his strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When we stumble, not if, when we stumble, we can repent, we can acknowledge that weakness, and in God's strength and all sufficient grace, we get back up. Don't let your circumstances change your belief in God. Let your belief in God change you in your circumstances. Right. I'll say it two more times. Don't let your circumstances change your belief in God. But let your belief in God change you in your circumstances. Not necessarily your circumstances themselves, but change you. One more time for Cynthia. Don't let your circumstances change your belief in God. Let your belief in God change you in your circumstances. Verse 24. You forgot we had more to go, didn't you? I told you it's going to be a couple short sermons. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man clothed in soft garments? No, those people are in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. 
For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. I love Jesus' line of rhetorical questioning here. Did you go out to the wilderness to look at the plants? Did, did you go out to the wilderness because you thought you'd see someone sporting the latest fashion trend? No, you went out there to see a prophet and more than that. First, John the Baptist was a messenger. Jesus here quotes from Malachi chapter 3, because that prophecy is concerning Elijah up in Matthew 17, 10 through 13. Jesus applied it to John the Baptist. Right? He said on several occasions that John the Baptist is, he said, Elijah will come. But for those of you who can accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who, come, who came. So it's a dual fulfillment of prophecy. Because both when John the Baptist came to make straight the way of the Lord before Jesus, Elijah will come before Jesus' second return. So the first thing is that John the Baptist was a messenger to prepare the way for Jesus' first coming. That will be Elijah's job before his second coming. And then he says there's no greater prophet than John. Now, of course, Jesus was a prophet. He wasn't just a prophet because he is God. But among all the human beings who were prophets, John was the greatest of them all. Yet he says the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Now, this is a great compliment for John the Baptist because picture the company he's in. Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha, Nathan, who went and, you know, uh, uh, rebuked David for his sin, or Habakkuk, or Obadiah, or, well, I don't really list Jonah as a great prophet. I love the book of Jonah, but he had issues. Malachi, Micah, right? These are the men that Jesus is saying, John is greater than any of them. That's a pretty great compliment. He says, but whoever of you is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Huh? Let me explain. So first, we have to ask the question, was John the Baptist part of the kingdom of God? And the answer is, not yet. Why? Jesus hadn't died and risen again. So the kingdom of God under the new covenant had not been established yet. John believed. He was wavering in his belief. But the new covenant hadn't been established, so John, being the last of the Old Testament prophets, was not part of that yet. Now he would be. When Jesus rose from the grave, when he led captivity captive, when, as we talked about last week, the first resurrection begin or began, then John was part of that, which is beautiful. You know, some people died and waited a long time in Abraham's bosom for Jesus' resurrection. John had only been in there for a year or two. It hadn't been that long for him. And since there's no time in eternity, he might have not even noticed. However, why are those in the kingdom greater? And it's this simple. Because our righteousness is not our own. We who are part of the kingdom of God, even if you think you're the low man on the totem pole in the kingdom of God, we are greater than any who were under the old covenant because our righteousness is not our own. We are part of the kingdom because of the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, 
by the grace of God. 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11 says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That way was paid, purchased for us on the cross. And at the resurrection, proven that that way was made for each and every one of us who believe. I, what else do you say? That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's why I get up every day. It's why I'm here this morning. It's why I share it with people I meet out in the community or invite them to church or, or whatever it might be. That's why. I was thinking back um, when I was recording my devotions for the morning. Uh, I was thinking back to COVID. Uh, and I remember, you know, we had, uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to get political, but we had all the masks and we had, you know, eventually the, the vaccines and, and we had the, you know, quarantine and stay at home. And, and we had all that stuff was going on. And what I remember about it is, is even though I thought it was really annoying, I remember being broken hearted over the fear that I saw in our world. And why were so many people afraid? Because they did not have hope. And many of them still don't. Put me in the hospital. I got a disease. Doctor tells me you're going to die tomorrow. Awesome. I need a slice of lasagna before I go. Oh, well, you can't eat. I remember when my grandfather was, was dying. He was on hospice. He was at home. Heart problems and all this. And my grandpa had been a diabetic for years. And I came over to, to their house one morning to see him. And his blood sugar was like, I don't remember, six 700. It was just way up there. Uh, for those of you who are diabetic, you know that's bad. And I, I'm like, Grandpa, what did you eat for breakfast? He said a half a dozen donuts. <laughs> like, um, you can't eat that. He goes, I can eat whatever I want. <laughs> All right, Grandpa. I think there was another morning that he eaten like a pound and a half of breakfast sausage. But see, he wasn't afraid. I had some great conversations with my grandfather. He knew where he was going because of his relationship with Christ. I'm not afraid to die. And I'm like, well, if I get it, I get it. If it kills me, it kills me. I got life insurance. Family, I'll be fine. I'm going home. I'm not afraid to die. But so many people are because they don't have the hope of eternity. They don't have the hope that only comes through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. Now when all those who had been baptized by John heard what Jesus said, it says here in verse 29 that they justified God. And what that word really means is that they declared the righteousness of God. Basically, they agreed with everything Jesus said, and they declared that God was righteous. I like that. So that takes us to verse 30. I titled this section, Oh, the Hypocrisy. I just, it, it's interesting to me. But the Pharisees, 
You know, usually I get excited when there's a but in the Bible because it's usually but God, right? This is this and that's bad and this person died and oh, but God, right? God stepped in and he dealt with it. But here are the Pharisees and lawyers. Man, you know, lawyers have never had a good reputation. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came, so sorry, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Now, not everybody was happy about what Jesus said. The Pharisees and the lawyer, really they were experts in applying the law of Moses. They had rejected John's baptism, which really means they had rejected the opportunity to repent and thereby had rejected the will of God for themselves. And they were clearly displeased. So Jesus decides to call them out, and this is not, of course, the only time he does it. So we have this statement about flutes and mourning, which I think is really interesting. What Jesus here is doing, he's accusing them of childish immaturity. Now Jesus told us to receive the kingdom of God like a little child in Mark 10, 15 and several other places. But what that means is that we are to believe in God with the faith of a child. And the faith of a child is an innocent faith. The faith of a child is one that does not doubt. You can tell a five-year-old how much Jesus loves them and they will look at you and they will believe you. It's not until we get older that we really get dumb about it. Because then we think we need explanations or we think we deserve understanding. No, we don't. I'm going to tell you this. Jesus loves you so much that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose for the grave. Believe that. Everything else is details. But here, this childish immaturity is wicked because nothing would ever be good enough for them. Right? We played the flute and you didn't like that. So we mourned and cried and you didn't like that either. You don't like it when we're happy and you don't like it when we're sad. What, 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 what's going to be good enough? So then he goes on and I, I've always enjoyed this statement, right? John came to you. He was fasting. He wasn't eating bread. Remember what he ate? Locusts dipped in honey. Ew. And preaching a message of repentance. So he comes fasting, preaching repentance and baptizing. I'm like, oh, he's possessed by a demon. What about those actions would make one think that John was possessed by a demon. But that's what they accused him of. Well, said Jesus said, fine, you know, I didn't come the way John did. Instead, I came eating and drinking and hanging out with the sinners. And you say, I'm a glutton and an alcoholic. That's what a wine bibber is. See, I'm a glutton and an alcoholic. Right? Nothing's going to make you happy. Those who do not want to recognize the truth about themselves, those who do not want to recognize their need to be saved will always find a problem with the preacher. I've done this long enough to know that that is true. 
I've had people come up to, to me, and it's not happened here, um, which I'm very grateful for, but uh, in all the years I've done this, I've had people come up to me after a service and go, well, that doesn't apply to me. Which part? You know, and they'll tell me what part of the sermon they disagreed with. I'm like, hey, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with the word of God. Your problem is between you and him, not between you and me. No, it's your problem. You didn't interpret that right, or you didn't apply it right, or you were just trying to pick on me and make me feel good. I'm like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about. Sometimes I do, but half the time they're upset with me because something happened that week, and the sermon, by God's grace and providence, addressed that, and they did not like the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and so they didn't want to repent, they didn't want to respond, they didn't want to change, so they blamed me. I always get a kick out of it. I get a kick out of it for this reason, because I've done it. You ever been there? You read through, you're reading the scripture, you're praying, you come across something, you're like, oh, 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 well, no, that can't apply to me. Turn the page. Let's go to read a psalm instead, right? I don't, I don't want to be convicted of my sin. I'm going to go read a psalm. Then you go read a psalm, and guess what? Well, God speaks through the psalms too. Well, fine, you know what? I'm going to go read about Jonah. He was disobedient. I'm in good company there. But if you don't want to listen to the word of God, or I don't, if you don't want to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you're always going to find an excuse. And that's what Jesus was accusing them of. They were just making excuses. And he says in the end, wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, the outcome will show that the approach was wise. For John... The outcome was that those who came out to him, they repented of their sins and they had their hearts prepared to receive the gospel. Because when Jesus came, sitting with sinners, right, they, they call him a drunk and all this, but in Jesus' ministry, just think about this for a second, billions of people have gotten saved and will spend eternity in the presence of God because of Jesus' ministry. So you can say whatever you want. Oh, well, he didn't do it the right way. Anytime a church today tries to do something differently than the way Jesus did it, they are wrong. Or we. But wisdom is justified by her children. I love it. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 23. I see this is like sermon number four today. Paul wrote this. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Now, we don't participate in sin. We don't do that. We don't approve of sin. And we have to be intelligent. Y'all know me. I have a history set free by the grace of God, but I have a history of pornography addiction. I am not going to go to a strip club and try to get the stripper saved. Whatever my intentions are, that's not how it's going to go. Right? It's not going to work out well. 
So if you have a problem with alcohol, probably shouldn't go back to the bar and share the gospel, right? Be wise. But look at what Paul is saying. You, you can't win them if you don't go to them. That's what it says. At the beginning of this year, we're on to the conclusion because I'm, I'm going to start talking about all this and I need to go forward. At the beginning of this year, I challenged everyone to one year of PDA. It's on the back of the bulletin if you forgot. I challenged everyone to reach one person per month by either sharing the gospel with them or giving them a personal invitation to church. That doesn't mean they get saved. right? That's not up to you. That's up to God. But you have to go out and share. This is what Jesus did when he ate and drank with sinners. He never participated in their sin, but he also did not sit inside a building and hope that they would come to him. He went and got them. Then I challenged everyone to spend one day per month fasting and praying. Both Jesus and John the Baptist demonstrated this for us. John lived on locusts and honey. I'm not saying you have to do that. If you want to try it, let me know how it goes. And Jesus often went off by himself to be alone with the Father. Before his ministry, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And then I, I challenged everyone to carry out one act of service per month, either inside or outside the church. This again was demonstrated by Jesus as he taught and healed people, as John, as he baptized and warned people. One person, one day, one act. We will not reach the lost if we don't go to the lost. We will not be prepared to go to the lost if we are not regularly practicing spiritual disciplines like fasting and prayer. And we will not be successful in impacting our community unless we, by the grace and power of God, go out and serve our community in Jesus' name. That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Too bad. Because I had to reflect on it as well. And I tell you every week, if I have to suffer through what the Holy Spirit puts in here, so do you. If you're listening to this today, you have heard the word of God, you have studied the works that Jesus did, and both are testifying to you that you need to believe in him. Please don't be like those who rejected the will of God for themselves, but know that God's will is your salvation in Jesus Christ 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, and he is offering it to you right now as a free gift of his grace. So if there's anybody here, there's anybody online, or anybody who hears this recording, and you don't know Jesus as Savior, you haven't repented of your sins and received the free gift of grace that he's offering, today is the day. Talk to me afterwards, leave us a message, or a comment on Facebook, or go to our website, New Song Gunnison, and hit the contact form. Because we all need Jesus. Number two, has there been a time or are you in a time right now when you are stumbling in your faith? If so, repent, acknowledge your weakness, and then get back up in the grace and strength that God provides. Last, this is not meant to be a guilt trip. You all know me much better than that. I do not operate on guilt trips. Whenever somebody tries to guilt me into doing something, I typically do the opposite, as long as doing the opposite isn't sin. Just the way I am. I'm that kind of stubborn. 
And so I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not going to, I don't want you to leave going, oh man, he was mean today. If you feel like that, you should check and make sure it's not the Holy Spirit talking. But this is meant as a moment of self-reflection for all of us. Have you been sharing the gospel with people? Or giving them personal invitations to church? A lot of people want that to fall. Oh, isn't that the pastor's job? No, it's not. My job is to prepare you to go do it. And I'm doing my best. I read a a study recently that, that talked about the percentage of people that go to church when the pastor invites them. Anybody want to guess? Six percent of people who visit a church will come when the pastor invites them. Do you know what the number is when a family or friend who attends that church invites them? That one jumps up into the 70s, actually. And then it's like, I think, eight percent with marketing and advertisement. So churches who spend millions of dollars on marketing and advertisement are idiots. Sorry, if you got that kind of money... People come to church when you invite them. Not when I invite them. Not when the website tells them to come. Not because we have an ad in the paper or anything like that. They will come when you invite them. They're much less likely to come if it's me. Most of the time when people find out what I do, they stop listening. It's just true. Two, have you been spending time in the spiritual disciplines such as fasting and prayer. Again, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. And I'm not saying you have to go 40 days and 40 nights without food and water. In fact, I would suggest you don't do that. But you can have a day where you skip lunch. Or maybe you can't because of some medical reason. How about you have a day where you skip social media? Or you skip watching television? Or, or, or give up something, take that time, and give it to God. That's what fasting is. And then where are you serving? Either in the church or in the community. You know, there's some things around here that need to get done. Feel free to help. There's a lot of stuff out there that needs to get done. Right? And I've I've said this a bunch of times. Maybe you're at the grocery store and somebody drops an apple juice off their cart and you pick it up to them and you hand hand it to them. Oh, well, that's, that's not sharing the gospel. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Or you got a neighbor who needs cookies. Or you got a pastor who needs cookies. <laughs> or lasagna. Or lasagna. <laughs> but you get the point. If you're already doing this, awesome! Keep doing it. If not, consider praying the prayer that, that we were given in Psalm 139, 23 and, 4, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If right, if you're like, well, I really struggle to fast and pray. Okay, seek God. Ask him for guidance. Well, I really have a hard time sharing the gospel with people. Join the club. I am a pastor. And it still freaks me out a little bit to walk up to a stranger and share the gospel with him. I do it. It's really fun to watch him squirm. But... That should not be your motivation. Your motivation is love. I'm just saying. But if you're struggling with any of these, go before God. Ask him to show you where you need help and then ask him for that help. I promise he'll give it to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for the example of our Savior Jesus 
who went to where sinners are in order to share his love with them. I thank you for the example of John the Baptist who showed us what it looked like to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Jesus did that, of course, too. I pray, Father, for anyone listening who doesn't know you, that your spirit would be at work in their heart in this moment and draw them to yourself. And I pray for all of us. Maybe we're in a spot where our faith is wavering. I pray, God, that you would show your strength in our weakness. And Father, if we're struggling to be the salt and light in the world that you've called us to be, I pray you would show us how we can do that. Again, by your grace and strength. And as always, in all things, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.